Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be in verses uh, 1 through 10. We've already read our text earlier. Let me just give you a little bit of a backdrop to that text. I want to fill in the context a little bit because Luke 15, as we've already seen in the previous chapters leading up to Luke 15, Luke is showing us the popularity of Christ at this point in his life. There are multitudes and multitudes, which translates into thousands and thousands of people that are thronging around Christ. They are following him. And, and obvious, as we have been able to already see, that there are many in the crowd who are following Jesus for a show. It kind of, it was more or less a spectator's event for many people as they accompanied Jesus on his journeys. Some followed him in hopes that they could catch Jesus messing up. There were those who wanted to see Jesus fail. They wanted to see him commit some egregious offense against the, the Jewish law. And so there were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes who were wanting to find him in a fault. There were others, however, who followed him for entertainment. They wanted to see a miracle. They wanted to see something remarkable, something spectacular. And so they were waiting to see some miracle. Some followed Jesus simply because he was so popular and they loved his persona. They loved how he was kind and nice and how he waxed eloquent in speech and perhaps even how he was able to upset kind of the religious system a bit uh, because of his wit and his wisdom. And so they followed him because of his popularity. But then there were those who followed Jesus because they were loved and accepted by him. They saw in Jesus something they'd never seen in anyone else. And they were drawn to his grace, his mercy, and his love. And these were people who the Bible often describes in, in more of a cultural, in more of a, the, the cultural terminology, these were sinners and publicans or tax collectors. You know, it's interesting that these two groups of people are divided into two categories, tax collectors and sinners. And again, this is a cultural distinction that you're hearing when you see that because the tax collectors were literally hated by the Jews because the tax collectors were Jews, but basically what they had done was sold their souls to the Roman franchise and they ultimately were employed by the Roman government to go back to their own people and through uh, very uh, unethical means would extract money, and they were protected under the law of the Roman government, they could take the money with whatever means they wanted to. They could take it by force, they could steal it, they had uh, improper balances whenever they would weigh out the taxes, and so they were literally hated. They were the scum of Jewish life. 
And so what I want us to do when we hear that in the text, when we, when we see that Jesus received sinners and tax collectors, here's how we really need to hear it. Jesus received sinners and very bad sinners. That's how they understood this. The text shows us that Jesus received them. So if you're taking notes, the title of the sermon today is Jesus received sinners. Now it's up to you if you want to put and very bad sinners. Jesus received, or this man received sinners. He would have dinner with them. He would sit, giving his time to talk with them. And this upset the Pharisees because Jesus was supposed to be this teacher of the Jews. He was supposed to be this, uh, this, this one that should not be associating with these awful people. In case you haven't figured it out by now, Jesus upsets a lot of people. As you read Luke, a lot of people get upset when Jesus comes in the room or they leave upset after Jesus comes into the room or shows up at a dinner party. But why were these religious people so upset because Jesus was receiving sinners. Well, they were upset because Jesus loves sinners. But this also shows us into the hearts of those religious people, those who were Pharisees. They didn't view themselves as sinners. They didn't see themselves as in need of being saved per se because they classified other people as sinners, but never themselves. And Jesus, what he is doing in this text, he's getting to the heart of his earthly mission. He's getting to the very heart of the essence of why he went to the cross. It is the heart of the gospel. I want to do something at the front end of this sermon because I want you to think about this as you go through. I want to challenge you, brothers and sisters, if you are a believer, if you're a member of this church or you're a visiting uh, member of another church, but you are a believer, I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you to think of one person you know that's lost. One person. Not 20. One. One person you know that's an unbeliever. Doesn't matter who it is. It could be somebody who lives in your own household. It could be a coworker. It could be a neighbor. It could be a friend, a cousin. I don't know. Think of that one name. I want you to get it in your mind right now. Get it in your heart. Think of one person who is lost. Now then, I want you to begin to pray for that one person to be saved. And I want you to pray that God would use you as a vehicle to share the gospel with that one person. That one person, that's, that's all we're going to be focusing on. I'm going to give you some more practical steps to this. But do you have that name? Not if you got a name. Do you? All right. Are you serious about this? Because I, I hope as we go through this, you will understand the, the level of seriousness it is to share the gospel of Christ. Listen, Jesus says that there is a party in heaven when just one sinner repents. So sometimes we think about the multitudes and the masses, but, but I think this is important to just think about 
the one. We're not thinking about 20, we're just thinking about that one. And we're praying and we're asking God to provide opportunities for us to share the gospel, perhaps today or this week or this month. But you're going to pray and ask God to allow you the opportunity to share the gospel with that one person that's on your mind right now. There are several things you need to know about, and that's what we're going to do as we look to this text. We're going to be prepared. We're going to go ahead and prepare on the front end because if everybody here shares the gospel with one person, if, and even if, if God's so blessed and it's within his right or it's, it's his will to do so, if that person gives their life to Jesus Christ by, by God's grace and, and they become a follower of Christ and they come back in, hey, if, if this all happened within the months, we, we ought to double our size like that, Right? And that's, that's what, if, if that person is local and close by. So there's some things, though, we need to be prepared for if we witness, if we evangelize, if we share the gospel, and we see people come to Christ. Some things you need to be prepared for. First of all, we need to be prepared to suffer reproach. Notice in the text it says that the, as the, the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to him, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They began to complain. You see, Luke is not just telling us a story about evangelism. He's giving us a context of what's going on with Jesus going and loving lost people, loving sinners and loving them with the gospel, teaching them and showing them his grace. He's showing us a setting. He's showing us what's going on. And Jesus is literally being criticized for loving sinners. Jesus is not criticized by the sinners that he was loving on. He was criticized by the religious people, by the people who were doing what they were supposed to do, living under the law. 20 years ago, I pastored at a church in Missouri, and one of our members, his name was Paul Mercer. Paul's going on to be with the Lord now. Brother Paul loved telling everybody about Jesus. That man, every single week, was out in our community, knocking on doors, meeting people in the stores. In every single opportunity he had to share the gospel, he was doing it. He and I would go on regular visits, and we would share the gospel together. And through, through Brother Paul's, just, just his, his dedication to sharing the gospel... We saw many people make professions of faith. Every other week, I would say probably around the the middle part of my ministry that was there in in Missouri, every other week we were baptizing. It wasn't anything for within a month. We were baptizing at least 10 people a month. We saw so many people come to faith and were following the Lord in baptism. And that, man, people were filling up the church. And I could have never imagined that somebody would have been upset at all the people coming to faith in Christ until one day, one of the older members, an old trustee of the church, came up to me and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Preacher, we're losing control of the church. All these new people who are coming into the church, they don't know how we do things here. And I, I, he began to talk about how long he'd been a member and all the money he had given to this church. 
I, I was taken back. And I said to him, I, I said, brother, so-and-so, I said, um, this isn't your church. And this isn't my church. There's nothing here for us to control. And his lip began to shake, and he said, just know this, we brought you here, and we will take you out. I couldn't believe that someone would be upset of people coming to faith in Christ and coming to the church. Can you imagine a Christian being upset because too many people were coming to faith in Christ and coming into the church? How could anybody be upset? By the way, before I continue this story, I will say I did have the opportunity to go back and preach at the church. It's been several years ago. And the man who did that was still there. And he was broken. He was a different man. And he ended up being a blessing to me. So just wanted to clarify that. Lord knows his name. But why would people be upset? How could people be upset? Well, let me tell you why this man was upset and why others shared the same sentiment at this church. They were upset because of people like Robert Harness. Our church was packed. I mean, just nobody else could fit in the pew. The only pews that are ever available when the church is packed are the very front ones. And it was on a Sunday morning that Robert Harness walked through the church doors for the very first time. Nobody knew him. I didn't know him. But he couldn't find a seat. He was late coming in. And he walked all the way down the front wearing his cut-off blue jean shorts, his shirt that was about three times too tight, a do-rag, and tennis shoes. And he sat down, and he cried through the whole service, ended up giving his life to the Lord. Ended up trusting in Christ, and man, it was, it was, a, it was a radical change that we saw in Robert's life. Robert was a rough character. He was dying from a disease that he got sharing needles. All of his friends were either dead or in jail. His kids were on drugs. Robert was a mess. But man, when he fell in love with Jesus, he wanted everybody to know it. He went and bought all kinds of Bibles at the Christian bookstore and put in his trunk of his car and went to every one of his friends. He went and visited the jails. He went and visited his neighbors. He gave all of his family members a Bible. He would call me up and he'd say, Brother Greg, I've been reading the book of Job. I, man, this is amazing, but why would they name a book called Job? He didn't know. How could anybody be upset? Well, they were upset because I remember one particular Sunday where I was preaching. And it was just like there was no movement or anything. And Robert was so full of God. He stood up in the front and he turned around and looked at everybody. And he said, what's wrong with y'all? He said, did you not just hear what he said? He said, every one of you need to be down here right now on your knees begging God for forgiveness. Let me tell you why people didn't like Robert. He made them uncomfortable. That's what young Christians do. They kind of rock the card. I mean, they don't, you know, you, do you know that, that a little baby that's what we are when we come to faith in Christ. We're babes in Christ. 
it, it takes a lot of patience with a baby, doesn't it? Man, some people just don't have patience with new babies. But, but Robert made people feel uncomfortable. And that's what new converts do. They, new converts would, would come in and they would shout when they were supposed to be silent. New converts would come in wearing the wrong clothes or they'd wear a hat. And you're not supposed to do that in church, right? At least that's what we say. They would come in and have the audacity to sit in a church member's seat or park in a church member's parking lot or parking spot. They make people uncomfortable. Religious people get, uh, when, re- when religious people get uh, comfortable and someone starts making them uncomfortable, what do they do? Well, they begin to complain. They begin to, to grumble. The same people who will say, we want our church to grow, will be the first ones to complain when the church starts growing. And whenever things begin to happen that change the dynamic or the overall structure, what they really mean when they say we want our church to grow is we want our church to grow as long as the people who are coming in think the way we think, vote the way that we vote, don't take my parking spot, don't take my seat, and give regularly and faithfully to the church. That's, that's whenever it's all good. But whenever they come in and act like a baby Christian, well then it causes us to be uncomfortable. You see what Jesus is doing? He's welcoming the people who made the religious people uncomfortable. He was welcoming to the sinners and the really bad sinners. Occasionally I hear those words by that old trustee in my mind. Preacher, we're losing control. And then I can't help but hear the words of that old hymn that we sing, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And I'm reminded that none of us own anything in the church of our living God. None of us have any rights, any controlling rights to God's church. The pews we sit in, the parking spots that we get to park at, the building itself, this isn't ours. This belongs to him. And we owe it all back to him. He's paid it all, everything here. Y'all know uh, when I came to Calvary, uh, and I made it very clear when I came here, we don't put plaques on anything. The only name that's going to be noted here is Jesus. This is all His. This belongs to Him. And so we need to think if we have any mentality that we own anything, that we have any entitlement rights to any of this, we need to remember that Jesus paid it all and all to Him we owe. We are indebted to Him and we owe it to the cross to go to that person that we named. You remember that person you named? It's been a minute. Are they still there in your heart? To go to them and tell them the gospel of Jesus. But if we're going to share the gospel, we not only need to be prepared to suffer reproach, to be criticized for that. Secondly, we need to be prepared to rearrange our priorities. 
Now notice whenever they begin to grumble, Jesus doesn't complain because they grumbled. He just simply tells them a parable. And here it is. So he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 into the... uh, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins? If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's a message to both men and women, isn't it? In both of these parables, a man and a woman has experienced loss. This man comes back in after leading his sheep, and he begins to count his sheep. Ninety-nine, I'm missing one. Counts them again, I'm missing a sheep. And he leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. The woman is counting her coins, and uh, she... Uh, she finds out that there's one missing and so she takes out a lamp and she begins to sweep the house. She's frantically searching for that one lost coin. I'm going to revisit what I told you earlier. Remember the one name in your mind. Just one. Because they're not searching for all. They're, they're searching for one. He, here, here's, here's what these parables teach us. They had to rearrange their priorities in order to go search for the one. Their lives changed the moment they realized there was one that was lost. The man was leading his sheep, had a lot to do. It's a busy thing being a shepherd. He has to protect the sheep, has to provide for the sheep. Sheep can't do a lot for themselves. He was needed by those 99. But he had to rearrange his priorities. And he had to go after the one. The woman, she had plans for that day, I'm sure. She was probably having to go fetch water. In those days, they didn't have running water in their house. They had to go fetch water away from the house. She needed to go to the marketplace at the store. She probably had to take care of the yard animals. Probably had some cleaning, some clothing that they had to take care of. And the moment she found out that that lost coin was missing. She had to rearrange her priorities. She stopped what she was doing. And everything changed. Now, I might offend someone with what I'm about to say, but just know that what I'm about to say is really more reflective back on me as the senior pastor here at Calvary. But Calvary, we will never go and search for those who are lost unless we rearrange our priorities. If we are primarily concerned with maintaining what we have, we will never search for those who are lost. We have to rearrange our lives. It takes a rearrangement of priorities. Hear me out. We love each other here at Calvary. That is so evident. We're a unified church. 
We love our ministries. We got to hear reports Wednesday night of all that God is doing. We love our building. We love our location. We love our missionaries we support. Calvary, you love your pastors. And all of this is reflective through our budget statement. But how much do we love those who are lost in our community? How many do we love those who are lost, who are neighbors? How much do we value those? Why did the man, the shepherd, why did he rearrange his priorities that day and go and look for the lost sheep? You want to know why? Because he loved it. Why did the woman rearrange her life to go and search for the lost coin? Do you know why? She highly valued that coin. Love and value. What kind of premium are we placing on those who are without Christ? Those who are in need of hearing the gospel. The assumption in this parable is that here is a man who loves his sheep and a woman who values that coin. And this same assumption is true about every believer. There should be the heart of God inside every one of us that loves lost people. You know, the Bible does not even let us get away with not loving our own enemies. We are to love and to go to them, to those who might even be ugly and mean and abusive, and love them in the name of Christ. This is the assumption of every believer. This is the heart of God, and it should be the mind and heart of every single believer. Let me ask you a question. This isn't a trick question. How many of you have ever lost something valuable to you? Raise your hand. A ring, a watch, a phone. Those are pretty valuable these days. You've lost something of value, some monetary value. What did you do the moment you realized it was lost? Yeah. You, went, you ever lost your wedding ring? Didn't tell your spouse until you found it. And you were looking frantically for it. You know, whenever we lose something of value, we stop what we're doing and we rearrange our lives and search for the things that we've lost. Let me tell you a truth. If you don't search for it, it's not valuable to you. Amen? If you don't look for it, it means nothing to you. Here's another question, parents. How many of you have ever lost a kid? You're not going to admit it. You were in the store, and you were busy doing something else, and they wandered off. Or you left them at church. That's happened here. I know I'm not going to name you, but it's happened. What happens the moment you lose a kid? Everything stops. Everything stops. And for a moment, and you're a mess. Why? Why did you stop your life? Why did you stop what you were doing? Why did your priorities change? Because of the love and the value that you have placed on that child. You see, love and value, they motivate us to go after when it's lost. If you do not search for your child, you didn't love them. We search for what we love and what we value when we realize they're lost. You and I have brothers and sisters we don't know yet. They live in this community. You and I have brothers and sisters we've not yet met. 
they live in this community. Do we love them? Do we love them? Do we value their souls? Maybe we've been so consumed with maintaining what we have, we failed to realize that they're missing. That they're missing. But today, God is reminding us, He's showing us through His Word that we have brothers and sisters. This was a sheep that was lost, y'all. We have brothers and sisters that are lost. They haven't been found yet. They've not yet come to faith in Christ. We need to go to them. We need to rearrange our priorities. If we love them and if we value them, we will. To go and search after those who are lost. Now then, do you still have that name in your mind? Are they still there? Just keep it. Keep that one. Do you love them? Are they valuable to you? Let me ask you a question like this. What if Brother Mac, and he might do this, takes 40 of our kids to the park here at South Haven, and he comes back with only 39? (laughs) He's not in here, I can say this. Or is he here? Sarah's here. She's going to tell him. Let's say that Mac comes back, and he says to everybody that's here at the church, all the parents pick up their kids. He said, y'all, we had a great time today. We've only lost one kid, but hey, we got 39, brought them back. Everybody had a blast. Are we going to be okay with that? I mean, it's 39. That's pretty good. Statistically speaking, I'll tell you who's not going to be okay with that. The parents, for sure, of that one who was lost. But I know this church. Every single one in here would rearrange their priorities. And we would take off to the park. Frantically searching for one. We would. That's our hearts. That's who we are. We would stop everything and go after the one. Brother Greg, how... That's one thing because we, 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 these are our brothers and sisters, yeah. They are. How, well, how could I love someone? How could I value someone I don't know? You know the person you named. Don't you? You wouldn't have named them if you didn't know them. You know them. Are they valuable to you? Do you love them? What's stopping you from going to them and telling them the gospel of Jesus? You see, the ones we love are really a lot closer than we think. Co-workers, people in our community that we see all the time at the store, the, the routine things, the, the neighbors. Not everybody's just a stranger that's lost. We know many people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus. If they're valuable, you search. By the way, this is this is uh, this has really been challenging me. I thought a lot this week about rearranging priorities. 
going to tell you something. It's been several years ago. I was asked to go visit a son who was in prison or jail. I said I'd do it. I contacted the jail. The jail makes it very complicated to get in to see people. Circumstances changed. I ended up putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. I made some good efforts, but I, I just never got all the way to it. I had to set up times and dates, and it was just hard because I had things to do here. Staff meetings and meetings with church members and preparing for sermons. Finally, I kind of forgot about it. Until one day I got a letter written by the man in jail who knew I was supposed to go see him. And in the letter, he just said the truth. I thought you being a preacher would have cared for somebody like me. But I can see that you don't. As far as I'm concerned, your faith is a sham. You don't forget words like that. You, you want to put that letter in a place where you never see it again. I didn't. I keep it. Because I didn't leave the 99 and go after the one. This is what I don't like about expository preaching. You just can't pick over things. This hits me too. But if we're honest, most of us here have not rearranged our lives to go after the one. And that's what it takes. What we love and what we value when it's lost, we search for it. So finally, not only do we need to be prepared to suffer some reproach, some people are not going to like it. Not only do we need to be prepared to rearrange our priorities to go after the one, we need to be willing and prepared to celebrate when one is found. This is what we see in our text. The man and the woman, both after they find the lost sheep and the lost coin, they, they don't just celebrate. They call their friends and their neighbors and they're like, hey, you come celebrate with me. And Jesus shows us something about what happens in heaven. He says, even in heaven, the same way there's celebration before the angels in heaven. This is showing us that it is God himself who is celebrating when one person repents, when they are found. And here's the truth. If we search, we succeed. You know, Dr. Gray Allison used to say all the time, people being saved is God's business. It's your business to go tell them how to be saved. And when you go and tell people about Jesus, you're always successful because you're just being obedient. I don't know what God's going to do with the one name on your mind. That's up to the Lord. All I know is that it's our job to go 
And don't, don't, don't take me wrong. If, if there's multiple people in your life and you can share, share with as many people as you can. Share with one a day. But just know this, when you search, you succeed. Eventually, you're going to find one who will repent. And when you do, man, what a celebration. I've had the joy of leading a number of people to faith in Christ. And I don't think there's ever been a time where when that happened, I didn't share with somebody. I either let a co-pastor know or I let family know. I let somebody know. It was a time to celebrate. I was eight years old whenever God saved me. It was so insignificant. Nobody in here ever heard about me being saved when I was eight years old. You've heard about my testimony. I've shared it with you. But at the time, nobody in here knew. Nobody knew anything that was going on. But I knew. My granddaddy, he celebrated with me that night. My family celebrated with me. Our church family celebrated whenever I gave my life to Christ. But nobody celebrated, I don't think, as much as I did. I was excited. And you know what? I'm still celebrating that God saved me. But more than that, as an eight-year-old boy, heaven noticed when I got saved. And there was a celebration before the throne or before the angels of God. Jesus himself celebrated when an eight-year-old sinner repented of his sin and gave his life to Jesus. Well, we need to be prepared to celebrate when one is found. Let me give us some ways to respond to what we've heard this morning. First of all, I have already challenged you with the name. Think of one. And be willing to search. Be willing to go to them, pray for them, and to ask God, ask God for help and opportunities. But let me give us some ways to respond to this sermon. First of all, we need to express an attitude of openness and a willingness to receive sinners and bad sinners. We don't select who we're going to share the gospel with. The gospel is universal. We're to share it with everybody. The worst of the worst. Doesn't matter who they are. We share the gospel with all people. We need to have that attitude of openness. Secondly, we need to engage with lost people in meaningful relationships. My wife and I were just talking this past week how we want to have a meal at our home and invite all of our neighbors. We don't know everybody. But we can go within a certain radius and just invite them to come and have a meal at our home. What a great way to show the kindness of Christ and to be generous in opening up your home and having a meal with lost people. Take some rearranging, but we need to do that. So there's some options here I want to give you. Invite people to your house for a meal. If you know somebody who's lost, invite them over for a meal and show them the kindness of Christ and share the gospel with them. Be careful if you're a single female inviting a single male over or something like that. Be, be wise. But if you can and you're able to do that, do that. Or take a coworker to lunch. It's a great opportunity and a great time during the week to not just use lunch for yourself, but take a lost person to lunch and share with them the kindness of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Invite one who is lost that you know a neighbor to come to church with you. In fact, invite them to the degree that you go and pick them up. And then when you take them back, you can talk to them about the sermon. 
Brother Greg, I, I, the one I named is tough and it's hard. I don't even know if I can talk to them about Jesus. Can you write? Write a letter. Type a letter. And mail it to them. And share the gospel. Are people saved by a letter? There's a letter. He wrote it down. Write the gospel out and mail it to them. And just say, it's been so hard for me. I've wanted to share this with you. I want you to know I love you. And I care so much. I'm going to tell you what Jesus Christ did for you. There's options. So go to the one. Rearrange your priorities. And tell them about Jesus. Jesus received sinners. And so should we. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be convicted today to tell other people about Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would not pass this off on the pastor's job or certain Christian leaders' jobs or just certain ones who would consider themselves as extroverted and just uh, skilled to talk with people. But Lord, we would, we would challenge ourselves. We would be challenged within our own hearts to see that this is the very heart and mind of Christ. To go to sinners and bad sinners and to tell them about Jesus. Lord, help us not to look at the sins of people and decide whether or not we're going to tell them. Help us not to look at the skin of people and decide whether or not we're going to tell the gospel to them. To allow any barrier whatsoever. Help us to remove all of that and to see all people as in need of hearing the gospel of Jesus. And to go to them with the love and with a value that we care. May you bless, may you bless your church. Cause us all, Lord, to be uncomfortable. Cause us all to rearrange our priorities. And Lord, when we find success, help us to celebrate. And may you get glory for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.